The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Thursday, April 5th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a crime wave in London, an unprecedented death toll. They have already surpassed the halfway mark to last year's murder toll. And even in England, it's just only April. Headline Spectator, why London's soaring murder rate is everyone's problem. Washington Post covered it this way. London struggles to fight crime spike. Murders soar in 2018. And now I'll read from the tabloid The Sun. Two fatal shootings in an hour, the latest killings and a rising tide of violence sweeping the capital. But just how common is gun crime in London? And what are the latest statistics? Here's everything we know about the worrying epidemic. All right, you ready for the stats about these fatal shootings? So far this year, they've had seven. Seven fatal shootings this year on a pace for about 20, maybe 21, in a city of 8.7 million. That's about the same. Actually, that's a little more than the state of Virginia. And by way of comparison, Virginia last year, total firearms deaths, 1,049. Almost twice as many suicides as homicides, but still a lot more than London. So you have on the BBC Today this alarming interview with the lead trauma surgeon at a large British hospital. Now we're doing major life-saving cases on on a daily, daily basis. Literally on a daily basis, life-saving cases. Absolutely. Because I read that you'd said your practice has gone from relaxed to working in a war zone. In a war zone, but I guess not a shooting war. To an American urban dweller, that's the kind of war zone that they would sign up for because the murder rate in London, this out-of-control murder rate, and I'm not diminishing it, just contextualizing it, that murder rate in London is lower than the murder rate in almost every city in the United States. In fact, the latest peg in the UK is to note that London actually now has a higher murder rate than New York City, which obviously seeks to shock. But as I have talked time and time again on the gist, New York City, as far as large cities in the U.S., is the least murderous. It is much safer than the national average, not the national average for cities, the national average of the nation, the United States. So that is why the BBC covered this story, this out-of-control murder story, as London knifings are on the rise. They talk to a member of parliament. Why? Why is it happening? There is no single cause, but um, what I'm concerned about is what drives the gangs, particularly in the turf wars, and what drives the gangs in the turf wars is an 11 billion cocaine drugs market. Um, We are the drugs market of Europe, and I think the police and our country has lost control of that drugs market. That's a very familiar argument to anyone who grew up in the 90s or who still lives in a crime-beset city like Baltimore or Chicago. But the thing is, the actual murder rate in drug-infested gang control, youth-run wild London, would be something of a peaceable haven in the United States. And of course, we all know the reason. Guns. So many more guns. I mean, in England, you have all those familiar-sounding markings of a society in decay, The breakdown of the family, rampant drugs. For all I know, they're talking about super predators in England. But if you don't have guns, there is a limit to how bad that crumbling society can get. English hell is American heaven because of easy access to guns. And there's nothing America can do 
except look at Londoners despairing for any answer and envy them their position with the knowledge that they already have an answer that we will never be able to adopt. In the spiel, bring me the scalp of Kevin Williamson, or at least his somewhat intimidating goatee. You can delete a tweet, sir, but the North and podcasts never forget. But first, let us do an assessment of the presidency of Barack Obama. Too soon? Or given what we're seeing here in 2018, not quite soon enough. So joining me now is Julian Zelizer. He is the man who edited the collection, The Presidency of Barack Obama, a first historical assessment. Hello, Professor Zelizer. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me here. So I read about the conference from which this book was born, the idea, let's assess Barack Obama right now. And every one of you historians say, and will put out there, there are, of course, flaws and history takes time. Caveat, caveat, caveat. I have to say... This is a good book. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, There's nothing wrong with assessments. But giving a president, any president, a letter grade is not just flawed. I would say it's folly. A year after he's gone. I mean, look at Grant. The guy's been dead in the ground or above the ground on the Upper West Side for a century. And now we're just getting around to saying, oh, maybe it was pretty good. So in terms of uh, assigning a letter grade, where do you stand? Is I don't, it worthwhile? I don't, yeah, I'm not someone who uh, likes letter grades very much for presidents. And I don't like the rankings that people always do because part of it, it changes over time. It's all subjective in terms of what you're even evaluating. And there's never a, a finite grade you're going to give someone. Right. So the idea of the book is actually to do something different, to get really smart people who think about the big issues that define the period of a presidency and to take a first cut at how do we interpret what a president did on an issue like race or immigration in the large flow of historical developments. And none of the authors give a letter grade at the end of their essay. And some say better or worse. But in general, that's not the tone of the essay. So that's that's what I'm trying to do uh, and almost provide the raw material for, for a debate that will unfold. So putting aside the reductiveness of the letter grade, even the assessment, and this is worthwhile, and this is what you historians do, even if you're doing it in the moment, even an assessment is hard. We can never know where this is going to go. Maybe he'll be harshly judged by, you know, not going further on something like criminal justice reform. Well, the the truth is we never know. And I see the writing of history about presidents and Congress as a ongoing debate and an ongoing story. And some good work often happens right when that uh, moment ends. So Arthur Schlesinger wrote some re- really great books about the New Deal fresh out of the 1930s or on JFK. They were flawed. They've been challenged, but they're still really good books. Uh, And one thing historians who live through a moment have that I don't have about periods I've written about earlier is a real feel for the moment, for what the culture was about, for what the leaders were like hearing them. And so that's where the value is. None of the historians I asked to do this are really... They're not presidential historians like you see on TV or something. They're historians of the issues, of yes. energy, of foreign policy. And so they, they come at it from that perspective. But I think you're right. So if President Obama, there are some people who don't like anything that he did. But right. even his biggest fans, I say, point to 
foreign policy in Syria as the big flaw. To me, it's just like if you, if you call a running play on the one-yard line and you get stuffed, everyone's going to say you should have passed. But that's not necessarily right. So, yeah, he didn't do anything that prevented uh, the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. A, could he have? And B, could intervention have been worse? How does the book grapple with that? The book, the author who deals with that uh, most, Jeremy Surrey, who's a professor at Texas, he's critical of author that. Author of The Impossible Presidency, past guest of the gym. Yes, and, he, and he's pretty positive on Obama on foreign policy. He has an essay saying he actually did a pretty good thing at bringing back the idea of international law and international alliances post the Iraq war. Uh, That was very important. And he withdrew forces from both wars as promised. Uh, Although in Afghanistan, there is a surge at first, but he's critical. So he, he differs and says, Syria is one example where, where you can argue plausibly it was a flawed response. I think you're right. I mean, had he sent in troops and that turned into a disaster, right. then that's the play you shouldn't do. It is a little like like football, but but it's still fair to say that's one region that doesn't come out better. Yeah. They're really focused, especially Surrey, on the reconstruction of a, a system of foreign policy that had really been undermined by President George W. Bush in how he responded to the 9-11 attacks when he went into Iraq. Uh, the most critical essay on foreign policy is someone who argues, Catherine Olmsted, that essentially Obama continues a lot of the counterterrorism programs he promised to reform and even accelerates them with drone wars. So that's where the sharpest criticism from one of the authors comes. All right. So let's talk about you set the tone, you gathered the people, but you also write essentially about party politics a lot. I hadn't considered it. I know that under the Obama administration, if you add up every governorship, every House and Senate seat and every state legislature, the Democrats lost a net loss of over a thousand seats. Some of that redounds to the choices Obama made. How much? I think it's uh, one of the great weaknesses that emerged in his presidency was some of the problems he had and some of the lack of enthusiasm he had about being a party leader. Uh, I think he was very uh, effective as a policymaker in ways we didn't grasp as it was unfolding when you catalog a lot of the policies that unfold. But in terms of strengthening the Democratic Party in Congress at the state and local level, the administration didn't devote a lot of resources or attention to this. Even in the 2012 campaign, the president really separated himself from the party. He didn't share email lists and contributor lists. And many Democrats were frustrated with this because he was handing them controversial legislation and they saw where the Republican Party was going. But by 2016, the party is in a much weaker condition than when he started. And you can't separate a president from that process. And I think that is a big story of his presidency that culminates with a Republican Congress and Donald Trump as president in 2016. So as I look at it, the Republicans used obstruction on the federal level. They used obstructionism as a governing tactics. They have this really effective propaganda arm in Fox, which is the uh, highest rated cable news service. There's an idea that low information voters can be mobilized with about big government. So up against that, an email list is going to combat all of that or a large part of that. It seems like the things that we're criticizing Obama for not doing fair enough, but how much how much of a stemming of the tide could all the 
best practices of email sharing have done? Well, there were moments. So the Republicans took that stuff seriously. So in 2010, one of the things the Republicans do, uh, now they're out of power, they're feeling pretty devastated after Bush. They say we're going to invest a lot in state and local races in the 2000 term midterms, not just congressional races. We're mm-hmm. going we're gonna to get email lists and we're going to get volunteers. And they do incredibly well in state legislative races. And the whole idea was we will do that. And then when there's a redistricting process, we will control the redistricting in a lot of these states because we'll have the legislature and we'll have the governorship. That was really effective, and and the Democrats weren't responding to that. And this is, in some ways, small potato races you're talking about. But that's an example where it would have helped to have the muscle of the administration with Democrats who were fighting in these races. And the costs, you know, were pretty steep for the party. Yeah. You add enough small potatoes up, you got a big plate of au gratin there. But how much, you know, the Koch brothers really concentrated on the small state house races. And on the national level, maybe because they were out of power, there was a huge concentration by the Republicans. Was there no one as motivated as, say, the Koch brothers? Was there sort of a structural imbalance between the parties in their ability to affect these small potato races? Look, there is an imbalance, meaning Republicans tend to have more money than Democrats because at least since the 70s, corporations and businesses and some of Wall Street favors the GOP. Their policies are about deregulation. Their policies are not about growing government, so it's more attractive. And so they do have Koch brother ties. But Obama's election itself is a sign that kind of a hopeless look at at what Democrats could accomplish is misplaced. Uh, mm-hmm. He defeated Hillary Clinton in the primaries, who had many, many more resources. And then he won the election in really what was improbable in, in the United States. To have an African-American president win by such a commanding majority uh, and, and to be so popular. So when I hear that, I'm like, okay, but but there are moments when Democrats do well. In 2006, they did win control of Congress. So it's not impossible. And it's not all about money. I mean, Republicans were very good after Obama was elected at grassroots politics. The Tea Party is not simply about Koch brother money. It was about people in districts mobilizing, getting energized, using Facebook and Twitter and whatever social media they had at their disposal to get people out. Right. That was the heart of it. I, I don't think it was just the Koch brothers. Yeah. Well, one of the contributors to your book is uh, Peniel Joseph, and he wrote the chapter Barack Obama and the Movement for Black Lives, Race, Democracy, and Criminal Justice in the Age of Ferguson. Yes. And Peniel is here, so let's talk about that. Hi. Hey, Julian. How you doing? So this was and touched upon the issues of race in general, but really the issues of policing. Um, The two major characters from the administration were his attorney generals. Give me a thumbnail thesis. What, What was your point in this collection? Well, my point was that there was a great irony in the fact that Barack Obama was the first black president, and he, you know, he had two administrations, and for eight years he presides over the system of mass incarceration. So on the one hand, his presidency can be read as a testament to racial progress, and on the other, by the second term, criminal justice and racial injustice converge to the point where we have uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore, the Black Lives Matter movement, all these demonstrations around the country, and the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and many others. And he, he's forced to try to deal with that, and that's something, as president, he was always very uncomfortable 
dealing with racial conflict because he really presented himself as sort of a racial healer and unifier. And we try to get to the bottom of that through some of the policy decisions that are enacted through the Justice Department. So you talk about the administration's goal to advocate for reducing the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. So powder cocaine, mostly used by white people, crack, at least the perception is more used by black people. And there was a hundred to one sentencing disparity. And then you note, even a relatively friendly Congress only reduced the disparities in the unjust sentencing reform Holder touted to 18 to one. Now, I think it depends on how you look at this, because you could, you use the word only, and you're saying, look, they only got to 18 to 1. How's that a victory? If I could channel my inner Barack Obama or Eric Holder, I might say, yeah, but I took it down from 100 to 1. I got you 82% of the way there. It's more to go from 100 to 18 than it will be if we ever go from 18 to 1. Well, I think, you know, here's the thing. I think, yes, you know, you can definitely argue that that is progress, and I think it is progress, but fundamentally, it should be one-to-one. So part of what you see is that that is part of the institutional racism in the criminal justice system that they weren't able, even at the federal level, because even if we got federal reform, we would need state-by-state reform. I live in a state, Texas, where we would need essential criminal justice reform in this state from top to bottom. North Carolina, basically the entire confederacy, the old confederacy, you would need to reshape at the state level. But at the federal level, 18 to 1 clearly is an example of um, racial and economic bias and injustice. Not only do we have 2 million people in prison at, at the federal, the state, the local level, but we've got six, seven, eight million people on probation and parole. So it's truly a crisis. It's just that many of those people are marginal people, even within, you know, the Obama constituency. They're black, they're brown, they're poor, they're gay, they're transgender, they're HIV positive, um, they're mentally ill. What BLM did was shine a light on those constituencies, and it really forced the president. One of the things I write about is that by 2015, he really is talking about the criminal justice system. He does a a speech in front of the NAACP where he's the first president to use the term mass incarceration. It just was not enough for the people who were in crisis or, or are in crisis. Hovering over this, I think, I mean, Peniel does a great job. He recovers Eric Holder and what the Justice Department did that was often somewhat subterranean to a lot of the country. They don't see this happening, yet he was really working and even getting more counsel uh, and resources for defendants. Uh, But at the same time, what hovers over this is where this is all going. And both the conservatism that existed in Congress already, which was dead set against a lot of the reforms he's talking about, and obviously... The election kind of opens up a very different side of the American democratic system that has no sympathy for what Obama was trying to do. So that's some of the frustration also, I think, of BLM realizing this was the best hope and it it was fleeting. And and the end result in the end was a president who was going to do a lot less after Obama uh, or move in the opposite direction, really, from what what had been achieved. Right. If you had told them, hey, and guess what? The next attorney general is going to be Jeff Sessions, they might not hang their hat on the idea of progress so much. No, and and I like what Julian's saying, because what the electorate voted for in 2016, it's really a politics of racial punishment and class punishment. So you look back at the Obama years and you say, well, we 
Um, and this is the quote, you know, Tanasi Coates' new book, We Were Eight Years in Power, and this is all we accomplished. So it's, it's truly disappointing. I want to ask you one last question, and it's really one of emphasis. Barack Obama or, you know, whoever is hired to program the Barack Obama Library will surely make the point, look how far we've come. And the Black Lives Matter activists will say, look how far we have to go. I think it's interesting because I don't think either side actually disagrees with the other. I don't think the Black Lives Matter would say anything to um, gainsay the progress we've made. It's just their emphasis is how much more we have to make. And I really don't think in his heart of hearts, Barack Obama would find fault with the uh, activists saying it's not enough and we still have a lot further to go. Yeah, I, I think on some levels what you see in terms of emphasis is that there has been racial progress, but then you ask the question, for whom? There's this great racial progress and racial opportunity for this small slice, yet tens of millions are still siloed, not only with a lack of opportunity, but they're victims, what Malcolm X called victims of American democracy, racial exploitation, environmental exploitation. They don't drink clean water or have access to good food, and they're, they're massively incarcerated, right? And so both sides have to admit that and say, well, wait, you know, how do we move forward? Where, like in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., where do we go from here um, once you admit the truth of that? Penelia Joseph is the Barbara Jordan Chair of Ethics and Political Values at the LBJ School of Political Affairs, and he's also the founding director of the Center for Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you, Peniel. Hey, thank you for having me. And Julian Zelizer is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton and the editor of the new book, The Presidency of Barack Obama, A First Historical Assessment. Thank you, Julian. Thanks again for having me. And now, the spiel. Selling now in the bargain bin at Better Booksellers Everywhere, it's Kevin Williamson, The Atlantic Years. It is in the remainders bin at Barnes & Noble. I think they're selling it at books a million. No, wait, books a dozen. Williamson, who's a very interesting writer, who has occasionally written quite asinine things, has been essentially unhired by The Atlantic after an intemperate tweet was revealed to be something of an inhumane, sincere belief. Personally, I still think Williamson is delighting, immaturely delighting in provocation. But when a person tells you, I believe abortion should be punished like murder, I tend to take them at the word. It wasn't just a deleted reference to hanging as his preferred method of capital punishment for abortion. Here is Williamson talking on a podcast in 2014 as unearthed by Media Matters for America. And uh, but yeah, so when I was talking about yeah, I would, uh, I would totally go with... Uh treating like any other crime up to and including hanging, which kind of, you know, as I said, I'm kind of squishy about capital punishment in general, but I've got a soft spot for hanging as a form of capital punishment. Uh, I tend to think that things like lethal injection are a little too antiseptic. Sure, if you're going to do it. Quasi-medical. Yeah, if the state's going to do violence, let's make it violence. Oh, I I absolutely agree. uh, Let's not pretend like we're doing something else. In the wake of this tape... Atlantic editor Jeffrey Goldberg wrote this to his staff. The tweet was not merely an impulsive, decontextualized, heat-of-the-moment post, as Kevin had explained it. Furthermore, the language used in the podcast was callous and violent. This runs contrary to the Atlantic's tradition of respectful, well-reasoned debate and to the values of our workplace. 
Goldberg added, Kevin's a gifted writer, and he has been nothing but professional in all our interactions, but I have come to the conclusion that The Atlantic is not the best fit for his talents, and so we are parting ways. And that is right. It's also a more elegant way of saying, I am no longer willing to wear a slicker in this particular shitstorm. But I don't fault Goldberg for that stance. You can see how the Williamson hiring is much more trouble than it's worth to him. And I'm not just saying it's a PR headache. It's a deserved PR headache. There's a world where Goldberg could have said, I don't care. Williamson's gifts outweigh his comments on abortion and his comments on transgender issues and how he once described a black child as looking as a primate. But Goldberg is an editor of a commercial product meant to appeal to some slice of the public and including Williamson would clearly make that product less appealing to the target audience. Goldberg is not the au pair for the First Amendment. He's making a business decision. At this point, it's a wise decision for his constituencies. Also, I don't really have any sympathy for Kevin Williamson. He's a provocateur. He provoked. He didn't make any real attempt to truly grapple with the implication of what he was saying, that a woman who gets an abortion is a murderer, and we should treat that crime like we would any other murder, and maybe hanging should be the punishment. That is a callous and glib thing to say, and he was reveling in how glib it was. That said, I will continue to seek out and read Williamson. I will be slightly inconvenienced by my having to seek him out specifically on the pages of a publication I don't already get mailed to my house. I also don't think that the vast majority of Williamson's thoughts, especially as they would be overseen by his new Atlantic editors, who have an Atlantic audience in mind, would be particularly dangerous to the Republic or that magazine. If anything, veering from the usual Mike Huckabee prattling, where he tries to placate anti-abortion forces with nonsense about loving the sinner or some such stuff, that's inherently dishonest. And I think all of us who are pro-life, and I can't think of anybody more pro-life than me, uh, we've never said that there was some punishment that ought to be meted out to a woman who had an abortion. Of course you haven't said that. That would be applying a logical consequence to your questionable idea that abortion is murder. That would hurt your side of the argument. So the acceptable way to have this argument is a construct. And that construct goes, abortion is the worst sin imaginable. And society, of course, exists to punish sin. But then we also say we would never punish a woman because that seems harsh. Yeah, Kevin Williamson was being harsh. Not only does The Atlantic not want to deal with his harshness, it really does blow up a regular pro-life talking point. In fact, the reason Huckabee was asked to offer that bit of theology cum daily affirmation was that Donald Trump had just in an interview said, well, if abortion's murder, I suppose you got to punish the murderers, right? <laughs> Enter Huckabee. No, no, that's not what you say. He wasn't prepared for it. It's clear that he had not thought through that whole idea of do you punish the woman? And of course you don't. Of course you don't. Heavens no. What a transparent concoction. And this is one reason, by the way, that I appreciate a guy like Williamson. He takes on nonsense like that from the right. If Williamson was so awful, not for his beliefs, which are conservative. That's not what he's being criticized for. His beliefs are the fact that he's ideologically conservative. He was being criticized for the particular strain and expression of those beliefs. Well, if it was so bad, so consistently bad, so, so, so bad to the core, how come every article you read 
criticizing the hire cited one of those three examples, which were all written in the last couple of years. Williamson has written, I don't know, half a million words, but it was his abortion comments and his transgender comments when he called a black child or likened a black child to a primate. Those were the comments that were cited over and over again. I will give you a decent answer to that rhetorical question. It's because that tactic worked. Those examples, really, the abortion one in particular, that's, that's what got him fired. Actually, I don't even know if he was really hired. He didn't publish anything. He didn't even serve a full Scaramucci. Jordan Weissman, my Slate colleague who criticized The Atlantic for the hire a week ago, noted this on our internal Slack channel. He wrote, about the Atlantic's hiring process, as much as editors hate to admit it, it's actually proof that trying to cherry pick the worst of a writer's work and submit it to careful scrutiny rather than hiring based on a nebulous sense of the overall output is useful since that's what the Internet's going to do anyway. Might as well not be blindsided. I think that's a fair point out of Jordan. But I wanted to take the time to go beyond specifically Williamson. Every liberal who has weighed in on this has said it is right for the Atlantic to rid themselves of this troublesome iconoclast. And every conservative who has argued on this point has said the Atlantic's allergy to Williamson is just another example of uh, the closing of the left mind. So I've really begun to think, why don't I fit into that? Why don't I sign on to any of those tribal takes? Most of the arguments for or against including an unorthodox opinion or excluding an offensive one are made on the behalf of some other reader other than the person who is doing the arguing him or herself. It is thought that the uh, the new hire will affect the discourse somehow for good or for ill. To extend the platform is to some extent to endorse an opinion. Therefore, denying a platform might to some small degree force a reconsideration of odious ideas. And of course, odious ideas can become odious policies. All these policies do start off as an idea. Why not just nip them in the bud? And I've often said that if Antonin Scalia were a conservative opinion writer all those years, I'd have read him. I'd have liked him. I'd have thought he was smart. It's just that he was in a position to make decisions over my life and your life that I objected to. Maybe it's me. I just like debate. I like ideas that I disagree with, even ideas that I find disagreeable. I like it a lot more than other people do, apparently, I'm finding out these days. I could say that I'm standing for a greater principle, but maybe it's it's just the kind of content I like. If it's a good argument, I like to put it against the beliefs that I currently hold and see how my beliefs fare. If it's a bad argument, I like knowing how it's going to be presented the next time I encounter it in the wild. My own opinions are strengthened by the most forceful opinions of others. Every once in a while, I change my mind, and I find that terribly exciting. But also, an idea that was clarified when I read a book for the show and interviewed the author. The book was named How to Think. The author was Alan Jacobs. And Alan Jacobs was actually quoting Jonathan Haidt. And Haidt talks a lot about how our moral institutions accomplish two things. They bind and they blind. People bind themselves into political teams that share moral narratives. Once they accept a particular narrative, they become blind to alternative moral worlds. And I so badly do not want to do that. Maybe I go overboard in my attempt to avoid that sort of blinding. 
Hate, by the way, is pretty unpopular among the sort of people who don't want Kevin Williamson to write for The Atlantic and also who don't like the fact that Brett Stevenson, Barry Weiss, and David Brooks write in The New York Times or that George Will and Hugh Hewitt are invited on Meet the Press. You know, these are the same kind of people who definitely want to hear from conservatives. It's not that they don't want to hear from conservatives. It's just that in all those specific instances of conservatives, they're very problematic. Maybe I just picked a bunch of bad examples. I'm sure there are some good conservatives out there, like David Frum. Most people like the current iteration of David Frum. This is just me. I'm strange, perhaps. I get a, uh, maybe it's even a suspect pleasure out of hearing people say things that I don't like and saying things in ways that I wouldn't say. I don't want abortion banned. I don't want abortion treated the same as murder under the law. But if you have an argument about why you do, I'm the kind of guy who's still interested in hearing it. Pierre Bienname, just producer, is so thankful that this Kevin Williamson thing is over. And now we can go back to talking about that Washington Post lady who seems to have a problem with the Jews. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, is like, wait, you mean Roseanne with the cookies? I thought that was for Heave Magazine. What'd I miss? Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He is furiously archiving all back episodes of Hang Up and Listen to see if Stefan said any hurtful things about long snappers. The gist. You want some conservative writing? I got some right here. I just watched the movie Chappaquiddick. I'll be interviewing Ed Helms. And I looked up William F. Buckley writing on it at the time. Here's a paragraph. Listen to some of these words. The Massachusetts judiciary, meanwhile, gives promise of cooperating. So do the police in Edgerton, maybe Edgertown, who acted toward the senator like equerries. Equerries. At this point, dignitaries flew into Hyannisport from all over the country to contrive a statement which was a combination of tusheries and heroic but guarded self-mortification. Tushery is an equerries. There you go. Oomperu, depperu, dupru, and thanks for listening.